several weeks, we've been talking about the implications of Christian stewardship. And I want to point your attention to an important statement concerning this matter that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and therein the reading is this. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to label the message this morning, having possessions and being possessed. Having possessions and being possessed. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 marks a turning point in the Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Here in Matthew chapter 6, the opening half of the chapter explains to us how righteous people practice religion. Verses 1 through 4 tell us how righteous people give. Verses 5 through 15 teach us how righteous people Pray. Verses 16 through 18 teach us how righteous people fast. But the second half of this chapter shifts from a warning about the consequences of hypocrisy to call the disciples of Jesus to embrace the values of the kingdom of heaven. And that turning point takes place right here in our text, verses 19 through 21. This section of scripture reminds us that righteous living transcends religious activity. To be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to adopt a countercultural mindset toward the possessions of this world. In other words, true followers of Jesus cannot live for the master on Sunday and live for money all of the rest of the week. Christians demonstrate where their heart's devotion really is by seeking 
the eternal rewards of heaven rather than the fading treasures of earth. To be clear, Jesus here is not saying that to be a righteous person, you must take a vow of poverty. That's not what he's saying at all. One has nothing to do with the other. Just being poor doesn't make you righteous. You see, money is morally neutral. In and of itself, it is neither bad nor good. What is good or evil is one's attitude toward money, one's attitude toward possessions, one's attitudes toward the things of this world. So be clear here in our text, Jesus is not saying that money is bad, but he is saying materialism is. In an old village many years ago, there was a mean, selfish, honorary rich man. No one seemed to be able to reach. The local minister finally went to the man's house to appeal to him as best he knew. And during the conversation, when words failed him, he decided to use an object picture. He took the man to the front of his own house, bid him to look out the window and said, tell me what you see. He said, I see some men, I see some women, I see some children playing around. And then he led him across the room to a mirror, a piece of glass with a sliver of silver placed in it to show one's reflection. And he stood him in front of it and said, tell me now, what do you see? And with a little attitude, he said, of course, all I see is myself. And the old wise preacher said, that's interesting, two pieces of glass. But when you put a little piece of silver in it, you can no longer see other people. You can only see yourself. Listen to me, church. If God permits you to see financial prosperity in this life, you are blessed. But if that is all you can see, that's a curse. Here in the text, Jesus bids us to look beyond the material possessions of this life. He exhorts us, as the next text will tell us, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and to trust that God will provide the things that you are tempted to worry about. Jesus bids us here not to invest our lives in things that are passing away, but to invest our lives in what 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 calls an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is kept in heaven for you. If I can bottom line this for you today, church, 
Jesus teaches in our text that there is nothing wrong with you having possessions. Just make sure your possessions don't have you. And so the question on the table today is how can you have possessions without being possessed? Three lessons Jesus teaches in this text. First, Jesus teaches us to be careful of where your treasure resides. Be careful about where your treasure resides. The text begins in verse 19 with a prohibition. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in or break through literally and steal. In the ancient Near East, one would count his wardrobe as a part of his wealth. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 22, Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, tried to swindle Naaman out of two fancy pieces of clothes because he defined his wealth in terms of his wardrobe. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, the Bible says that Achan brought a curse of punishment on the children of Israel when in Jericho he saw in a certain house a beautiful set of clothes and, and he stole it for himself rather than consecrating it to God. He thought his wardrobe would make him wealthy. But listen to Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure because you can get a fancy set of clothes. But eventually, moth will eat it away. The more common definition of wealth in the ancient world was through precious metals. But here again in the prohibition, Jesus says, don't, don't get too excited because you've got precious metals. Just give it a little while. And while the moth will get your clothes, rust will get your gems. Are y'all in here with me? Don't, don't try to fill up your house with expensive, fancy, glossy stuff to impress other people. Because no, no matter how secure you think that stuff is, thieves can break in and steal it away. This was quite literally true in the ancient Near East where many of the common people lived in, in houses made of dry mud and a thief would literally punch his way through the wall, reach in and take your stuff without ever coming in. And so Jesus rightly warns, 
Do not lay up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But then move forward with me into verse 20 where Jesus moves from a prohibition to a parallel exhortation. Now he says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Hold these two verses in tension and note with me today, church, that the concern Jesus has is not that you are laying up a treasure for yourself. Mm-mm. The concern, well, Jesus assumes that you will lay up for yourself a treasure. That's the assumption. The concern is that you need to be careful about where your treasure resides. The location of your treasure, earth or heaven, denotes the character of your treasure, worldly or spiritual. Treasure on earth refers to worldliness, materialism, and covetousness. But treasure in heaven refers to communion with God, fellowship with God, the blessing of God. Here, Jesus says that you, if you're going to live a truly righteous life, you must adopt a godly value system. You must put your priorities in order. You must have the right attitude toward earthly stuff. In fact, there's a play on words here in the text. Literally, Jesus says, don't treasure your treasure on earth, but treasure your treasure in heaven. Do you hear me? And verse 19 is in a grammatical emphasis that forbids something that's already going on. Literally, Jesus says, hear this, stop treasuring earthly treasure. Stop being impressed with worldly stuff. Stop being so fixated with material possessions. Instead, he says, make your treasure a heavenly treasure. Don't treasure your treasure on earth. Treasure your treasure in heaven. Why, Jesus? Glad you asked. If you're taking notes, jot down Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. There, the writer says, do not toil to acquire wealth. If you've already started, he says, be discerning enough to stop it. Because when you're when your eyes light upon it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. You missed it, I'll give it to you again. Don't hold on to money too tight. Because no matter how tight you try to hold on to it, money has a way of sprouting wings. 
and flying away. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says that whoever loves money will never be satisfied with money. And the one that loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. And then in Matthew 6, 19, verse 26, that is Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus himself says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what in the world can a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark it down, church. Money can buy amusement but it cannot buy joy. Money can buy a bed, but it cannot buy sleep. Money can buy companionship, but it can't buy real friends. Money can buy a house, but it can't buy a home. Money can buy medicine, but it can't buy health. Money can buy sex, but it can't buy real intimacy. Money can buy therapy, but it cannot buy redemption, forgiveness, and eternal life. Be careful about where your treasure resides. Thought I'd have a witness there. I'm glad I brought my own. It's a man named the Rich Young Ruler whose story is told in Matthew 19, verses 16 through 21. He comes to Jesus asking how to inherit eternal life. Jesus said, in essence, you know the Ten Commandments, just do what the Ten Commandments said. And instead of being convicted by sin, he starts celebrating his religiosity. Jesus skipped over the first commandments about how to relate to God. He just mentions the commandments that speak about how to treat your neighbor. He was making a point, but this guy is so full of himself, he doesn't even get it. Jesus says, if you want to get eternal life, just obey the Ten Commandments. And, and Cass said, is that all? He said, I, I went to Sunday school as a child. I learned those as a little boy, and I've been keeping the commandments all my life. Jesus said, well, you're doing good. If, if you want eternal life, you only need to do one more thing. Go sell all you have. Give the money to the poor and come follow me. And the Bible says he walked away from Jesus with great sorrow in his heart because he had many possessions. Or, if I can give that to you out of the CIV, the Charles International Version, his possessions had him. <laughs> Think about it. He said, he said he wanted eternal life. But materialism has so gripped his heart that when push came to shove he ultimately didn't care if he went to heaven or hell as long as he could have cash and
and clothes and cars in this life. So Jesus says, stop treasuring your treasure on earth. Treasure your treasure in heaven. If you want to be a righteous, godly, Christ-centered person, he says, be careful about where your treasure resides. But the second lesson of the text is this. Be committed to treasure that remains. Not only must you be careful about where your treasure resides, you must also be committed to treasure that remains. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, records an incident where Jesus' sermon is interrupted by, by a man who asked the Lord to settle a family financial dispute. Make my brother split the inheritance with me, he says to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you think this is, the people's court? Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? Then he says in Luke 12, verse 15, if you are taking notes, write this down, make friends with this verse. Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 15, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. Covetousness is an excessive desire for more. Be on guard against all covetousness. Here's why. Because One's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. You didn't get it. Let me try it again. You are more than how much money you have in the bank. You are more than some car with two names on the hood. You are more than a house in a gated community. You you are more than the prefix before your name or the suffix after your name. You are more than some European designer's label on your clothes. Life is about more than material possessions. To make this point, Jesus tells the story of a farmer who had a bumper crop. The harvest was so great that His barns were not big enough to store it all. You would think that with such an overflow blessing, the farmer would say, well, let me share with somebody else who doesn't have anything. Mm -mm, Not this guy. This guy has more than he knows what to do with, and it creates a crisis in his life. That's when you know your attitude is wrong. When you view a blessing as trouble, it means your priorities are out of line. Because the Bible says the blessings of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. When the Lord gives it to you, he'll make sure you enjoy it at the same time. But this man, his blessing is a burden. Got so much stuff, I don't even know what to do with it. What should I? Oh, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll start a building project. I'll tear down these barns, and I'll build bigger barns, and I'll store up all that I got. And when I got it all safely locked in, then I'm going to say to my soul, soul. We are loaded. Take it easy. 
just eat, drink, and be merry. You've got enough to last you for years to come. And while he is toasting to his wise business decision, God invades the boardroom of his hard heart and says, you fool. Tonight your soul is required of you and the things you have stored up, who's going to get them now? God called him a fool. God called him a fool because he thought about himself and not others. God called him a fool because he thought about tomorrow but didn't think about eternity. God called him a fool because he thought about his bank account but didn't think about his soul. He knew what he would do if there was a drought next season, but he didn't think about what he would do when he would have to stand before God and answer for how he lived his life. And so God called him a fool. And in Luke 12, verse 21, Jesus comments on the parable by saying, so is everyone who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What a warning. Because all around us, we regularly see people who act and think and talk like this rich man. Just pick up a magazine. Just read the newspaper. Just watch television. We, we see people who talk and think and act like this rich man of Jesus' parable. And do you know what they're called on TV and in the magazine? They're called successful. They're called stars. They're called celebrities. God calls them fools. <laughs> The world around us is filled with people who are doomed because they embrace two foolish myths. Here they are. More is better, and now is better. But there is one big problem with a get-it-all-and-get-it-now philosophy of life. The things you desperately are trying to get will not last. And so Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. When Jesus commands us to lay up treasures in heaven, let me be clear, he is not trying to tell us how to get to heaven by performing good works. Romans 3, verses 23 and 25 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Sinners are saved from the eternal wrath of a holy God by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, not by what we do or do not do. So Jesus is not telling us to lay up treasures in heaven in order to earn salvation. He is saying 
that the sign that you've really been born again is that God so changes your heart that your priorities are rearranged. Where you don't put so much focus on the passing things of this world and you give yourself to things where moth and rust cannot destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 11 through 14, Jesus says that everybody, every Christian is building a house. Your life, he says, is a house. And he says, be careful how you build. He says, you can build with different materials. You can build with gold, silver, or precious stones. Or you can build with wood, hay, and straw. He said, you can build either way you want to. But, but notice, when you get to heaven, there's going to be a final inspection. And the Lord is going to intentionally try to set your house on fire. And if you've been building with wood, hay, and straw, you will find that you have built a life where you spend all your time on things that do not last. How important is that house going to be 100 years from now? How important is that car going to be 100 years from now? 10 years from now? <laughs> One year from now? <laughs> How important is that diploma going to be 100 years from now? How important? Is that career going to be a hundred years from now? How important are those accomplishments going to be a hundred years from now? Jesus is saying today, church, you better get your priorities straight. Don't invest your life in things that will not last. I don't know if you got that point. Let me circle back and hit it again. The things of this life are not going to last. First, Jesus mentions the fact of life's losses. Verse 19, do you see it? Moth will get it. Rust will get it or thieves will get it. Jesus confronts that old axiom that says that the one who has the most toys at the end wins. Question is, wins what? Because you can have all the toys, but but you can't hook up a U-Haul to a hearse. Those things of this world don't last. I thought I'd have a witness. I'm 
glad I brought my own. Job was the richest man of his day, and in one day, he lost all of his material possessions. He is sitting in ashes. He has shaved his head. He is wearing sackcloth. He is in great grief. His servants are gone, his camel, his sheep, his oxen, his children, his houses are gone. And at his lowest point, the news reporter shows up and sticks a microphone in his face and says, how do you feel about what just happened to you? <laughs> and Job answered. Job 1.21, he says, naked. Came I from my mother's womb. Let me try it again. Job took the mic and said, let me tell you my story. He said, let me start before my birthday. Be before I came into this world, I had to go through God's sovereign customs agency. And they kept a record of what I checked in with. And the record is I checked in with nothing. No camel, no sheep, no oxen, no house, no land, no servant, no silver, no gold, no sons, no daughters. And no matter how long I live, no matter how many degrees I get, no matter how much property I buy, no matter how much stuff I accumulate, one day I got to check out, and when I check out, I got to go through customs again. And they'll only let me check out with what I checked in with. Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. Hey, <laughs> blessed be the name of the Lord. Your stuff won't last. In fact, if you want some good theology, go home. You ain't got to read your Bible. Go home and play Monopoly. You can make all the money. You can buy all the property. You can even own boardwalk. But at some point, the game is over. It's all going in a box, and they're going to put the box away. Help me hear somebody. That's the fact of life's losses. Let, let me lean into that another way. Notice the factors of life's losses. He says there's three factors that guarantee you're going to lose your stuff. Moth, rust, and thieves. Moth represents nature. Nature can take your stuff. 
It ain't got to be moth, but nature can still get to it. Hurricane can come. Tornado can strike. Fire can break out. Flood can rise. Earthquake can hit. Nature can take your stuff. But if moth represents nature, rust represents time. Don't get caught up in it because time will take your stuff. It'll rust. It'll wear out. It'll break down. It, it will go out of style. It will become outdated. Do you know the moment you drive that new car off the lot, it ain't new no more? I wish I had a praying church. Time will take your stuff. Still in the text, but watch Jesus. He says, if nature doesn't get it and time doesn't get it, people will. Thieves. Robbers. Hustlers. Family. <laughs> Carjackers. We, we live in a day where they ain't even got to break in and steal. They don't even have to come in the house. They can just go through the trash. You look up and your identity has been stolen. And you got to prove that you are. Come on, talk to me here, somebody. But then also note the force of life's losses. Three factors, two forces. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. Meaning this. It may be over years, or it may be overnight. But either way, the things of this life will not last. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's the word of the Lord to you in here. If you got a little bit of change, making you feel like you're somebody. The Lord says, don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Don't be haughty. And don't put your trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who freely gives us all things to enjoy. He says, in other words, it's nothing wrong with you having stuff. Just don't forget who gave you what you have. Just in case, just in case, let me rehearse that for you. What you have, God gave you. What you know, God taught you. Where you are, God brought you. And if you're going to get anywhere further, it's going to
going to be nothing but the grace of the living God. Be careful about where your treasure resides. Secondly, be committed to treasure that remains. Finally, be concerned about what your treasure reveals. What you treasure is a barometer of your true spiritual condition. Singing and shouting doesn't really tell how close you are to God. Do you want to know how to really tell how close you are to God? I'm going to tell you, you ain't going to like it. But it's the truth. The real evidence of how close you are with God is in verse 21. For where your treasure is, I tried to warn you. There will your heart be also. You cannot rightly claim that the Lord has your heart. If JEA and DirecTV and the town center gets all your treasure. And you make no investment in the things of God. Martin Luther coined the phrase, Sacra Scriptura Suis Interpretus is the Latin. It simply means sacred scripture is its own interpreter. In other words, scripture has a way of explaining scripture. The word of God is its own best interpreter. And so to better understand scripture, you've got to compare scripture with scripture. And as a result of that conviction, a significant part of my own study of God's word is the process of correlating scripture with scripture. Or, or simply just checking the cross references to see what the rest of scripture says to, to weigh in on what I'm studying in a particular text. To, to do this part of my study, I use the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. It's just the biggest book of cross-references you can find. It's called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And in the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, the first cross-reference for Matthew 6, verse 21, is Genesis chapter 21, verse 14. Genesis 21, verse 14. Let me read it to you. It says... And Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on, his on her shoulder along with the child. And he sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Bathsheba. What in the world does that have to do with the fact that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? I'm glad you asked. Abraham left everything to follow God. Trusting the promise of God that God would bless him if he just 
trusted and obeyed. A part of that promise of God was a specific promise that God would give Abraham a son, but Abraham was getting older, his wife was barren, and time was slipping away from them, so his wife Sarah came to him and said, we might need to help God out on this one. Seeing that it's not working between us, I got a maid named Hagar, and if you can go into her, maybe that's the means by which God will provide us a child. Abraham listened to his wife, uh, went in unto her maid Hagar, and they had a child named Ishmael, but that's not the child of promise. God promised the child with his wife Sarah, not their maid Hagar. God reaffirmed this promise. And indeed, Sarah conceived and gave birth to a child that they named Isaac. And it wasn't long before tension between the two women began to grow as a result of the respective boys that they uh, gave birth to for Abraham. And the tension got so great, or if I can just put it plainly, Hagar ticked off Sarah so much one day that she said to Abraham, put that woman and her boy out of my house. This broke Abraham's heart. Uh, Hagar was indeed the male, but the maid, but Ishmael was his son, was his first son. He did not want to send him away. So he went to talk to God about it. And I love what God told him. God said, you listened to your wife the first time. <laughs> you asking me for it. You asked. You talk to her the last time, listen to her this time. And, and take Hagar and Ishmael and put them out of the house. And after talking to God, Genesis 21 verse 14 says, early the next morning. He got up and got some bread and some water and put it on her shoulder and gave the boy to her and sent her away. And she left and wandered in the wilderness of Bathsheba. Did you get it? Uh, you see... Sarah represents the guaranteed promises of God to bless Abraham if Abraham would just trust and obey. Hagar represents the doubt-filled and flesh-centered attempt to do for himself what God promised if he would just walk with God. And both women couldn't live in the same house. To try to make them live together would have compromised or confused the purpose of God in Abraham's life. And so to line up with God's will and walk in the blessing of God, Abraham had to put Hagar out. Whatever your name is, you got a Sarah and a Hagar in your life. And God wants you to know that faith and Flesh can't lead the same heart. And if you try to make them work together, 
you are going to confuse the work of God in your life. And so God brought you to church this morning so that you could hear pastor say it's time to kick Hagar out the house. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart represents the seed of personhood, the mind, the will, and the emotions. You want to know where your heart really is? The word here means check what you think about the most. Check what moves your emotions. Check what shapes your decisions. God cannot have your heart if he doesn't have your treasure. Or can you say if anything in this world is everything to you, You've got an earthly treasure. The Apostle John put it even better. He says, do not love the world, nor the things of this world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is of the world and not of the Father. And the things of the world are passing away and the lust thereof, but the one that does the will of God will abide forever. Acts 8, verse 14 through 25. The Spirit of God falls on the Samaritans. Peter and John show up to affirm it. When they do, they confirm the work of God by the laying on of hands. And there was a professing believer who was also a sorcerer. He saw this, and he went up to Peter, and he said, Peter, how much will you charge me to show me that thing with the hands you was doing. Give me that laying on the hand stuff. And in Acts 8, verse 20 and 21, Peter says, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Pray with me, church, that God will raise up some men of God who are real men. That is, they have backbone and are courageous enough to say in the midst of superficial Christianity, where high-profile religious personalities will make people think that faith will guarantee prosperity. We need real men of God who are courageous enough to say that if money is all you are after from God, your heart is not right. And you will perish with your money. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When I first engaged this text in a meaningful way, it had a radical and revolutionary effect on me because I assumed the opposite. Stay with me, and I'm getting to the end. 
I assumed the opposite. That where your heart is, your treasure. I, I just assumed that, that if you got my heart, then I won't mind giving you my treasure. If, if you care about something, you'll give to it. You'll, you'll invest in what you love. I, I thought where your heart is, your treasure will follow. But counterintuitively, do you see verse 21? Jesus says, the treasure shows up first. And wherever you invest your treasure, your heart will find out about it and show up where your treasure is. Meaning, don't invest in anything that's not worth loving. If it's something you ought not love, let me try it again. If it is someone you ought not love, don't invest. Don't invest time. Don't invest emotion. Don't invest conversation. Because the more you invest, the more it'll get your heart. Conversely, if, if you want something to get your heart, invest in it. And so when a husband or wife says, I just don't love my mate no more, I, I guess got to ask what you've been investing in. It might be you've been investing in something else rather than investing in your marriage because if Jesus is right where your treasure is, there your heart. And do you see how that works with God? Jesus said, don't you dare try to say you love God if he can't get none of your treasure. But if you want to get closer to God, the Bible says here's a clear way. The more you invest in the things of God, the more he will get your heart. I recommend Randy Alcorn's little book, The Treasure Principle where he summarizes the message of this text in one statement. He says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My daddy was a storytelling preacher. And uh, he would wrap up most of his sermons with a summarizing illustration. And one of the my favorite stories to hear my daddy tell was about a little girl who worked as a maid for a rich family. And on a particular holiday, they ordered her to pack the car with blankets and put a basket of food together. They were going to celebrate together. She, of course, was not allowed to go. She would have to stay and do chores on the holiday. She packed them all in and sent them all off. And when they pulled away, she just kind of sat there 
on the lawn, deciding to just enjoy a little bit of the morning before she went in to do her assigned work. But as she sat there, a shadow was cast over her. Suddenly, she looked up, and it was a fancy-dressed young girl about her same age looking down at her. Rather than speaking, the girl looked down and said, Do you know who I am? The poor girl looked up and said, Yeah, I know who you are. You're part of that rich family that lives up on the hill. I hear my family talking about you around the dinner table. She said, Yeah, that's who I am. And we're going out to celebrate in a little while today on my daddy's boat. And I'm just taking a while playing outside, enjoying some of the new stuff my daddy got me. You like my new dress? My daddy got me this and a dozen just like it. And then she shouldered her shoes. She said, you like my shoes? My daddy bought me these shoes. She said, I don't know. She said you know that house up there? on that hill, that biggest house up there is our house. I don't know if you know about that, that biggest ship out there, that big yacht out there, that, that's my daddy's ship. And we're going out there and celebrate today the, the holiday. She just kept going on and on until the little girl couldn't take no more. And she said, she said, well, you know, my dad is rich, too. <laughs> I wish I could say it the way I feel it this morning. He said, he said your dad is rich. Well, if your dad is rich, tell me what he owns. The little girl looked up and said, you see that land that your daddy's house is on? That belonged to my daddy. You see that water your daddy's boat is on? That belonged to my daddy. My father is rich in houses and land. He owns the wealth of the world in his hands. I'm done. But that, that little rich girl was offended and said, if your daddy is all of that, why you dress like that? Oh, dirty dress. Holes in your shoes. If your daddy is rich, why you look so bad? The little girl said, you just got to excuse my appearance for now because I ain't home yet. But when I get home, hey, my daddy got a new robe waiting on me. When I get home, my daddy got new shoes waiting on me. You may build. Great cathedrals, large or small. You may build skyscrapers, grand and tall. You may conquer all the failures of your past, but only what you do for Christ will last. Only what you do for Christ will last. God be praised for his word.